Let us pray. So, Father, we do thank you that Jesus is our good and great shepherd and that he leads us in pastures green. So we ask even now that you would feed us and nourish us spiritually by your word and by the inward work of your Holy Spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. It's good to be back after um, two Sundays away attending the Global Anglican Futures Conference, which I'll have more to say about. Uh, at the end of my sermon, I want to share a little bit of some important updates related to that, that event in Kigali, Rwanda last week. Um, but before I talk about anything else, first things first, um, we have a new addition to the church family. Last night at 11.32 p.m., Sophia Camille Trenum was born, 20 inches, 8 pounds, 9 ounces. And so, <clears throat> thanks be to God. Father Jed texted early yesterday evening and said they were at the hospital and that um, Emily's contractions were about five minutes apart. And um, then the text came through about 1 a.m. this morning that the baby was born at 11.32 p.m. So, yes, and that's why we have a white rose on the altar. And um, I know... Um, mother and baby and father are all doing well and look forward to hearing more reports and meeting baby Sophia in the near future. Um, thank you all for everything while I was gone. Some of you may know that I got back last Sunday evening, um, starting with an upper respiratory infection about the time that I got back. Not COVID, not seasonal flu. Um, but still a pretty nasty upper respiratory infection, which I promptly shared with the rest of my family. And so Tim and Eliana are homesick this morning. I'm, I'm doing much, much better and um, haven't had a fever since Wednesday night. And so, um, but I guess when you're in a conference with over 1,300 people from 52 different countries, there's a lot of bugs going around that we don't have resistance to. But it was a, a wonderful, wonderful trip. <clears throat> thanks to Father Jed and thanks to... Um, Deacon Julie and the staff and everyone who did such a fine job while I'm away. You know, it's a nice thing to be able to leave and be away and not have to worry about how things are being handled or the things are being taken care of. So I just want to thank our staff. And thanks to Father Tim Howe, who was with us the past two Sundays preaching as well. I knew this was just way too close to Emily's due date to put Father Jed on the schedule to be preaching the past two Sundays. So um, thanks to him as well. I want to invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to our Gospel reading from St. John's Gospel this morning, John chapter 10. And today is the fourth Sunday of Easter, which is always Good Shepherd Sunday on the church calendar. So we always read for our Gospel one of the um, passages from St. John's Gospel where Jesus talks about being a shepherd to his people. Um, and full confession this morning, um, I had one day in the office this week with being sick, and I don't feel like I'm hitting on all cylinders. So um, just for whatever that's worth, if I stumble or I seem like my sermon's not flowing quite as well, you can blame it on the crud that I brought back with me. So um, I do want to look at our gospel reading, though. And um, this reading from John's gospel contains one of what are known as the I am sayings of Jesus. There are in John's gospel, or the I am sayings of Jesus are unique to St. John's writings. There are seven in John's gospel. 
including the one we heard today, I am the door, but also I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection, the life, I could go on. And also there is one in the book of Revelation, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The statement that Jesus makes here in the parable in John 10, 1 through 5, um, really grows out of some things that happened in John chapter 9. This follows on the heels of Jesus healing the man born blind from birth in John chapter 9. You may remember the story of how Jesus used mud and saliva to cover the, man, to cover the man's eyes and then told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man obeyed Jesus' instructions and miraculously received his eyesight. Because of this event, the Pharisees wanted to discredit Jesus. And in their investigation of this miracle, they also insulted the formerly blind man and basically pushed him away from them, attempting somehow to exclude him from the community of the Jews. We see this in chapter 9, verse 34. And these religious leaders did this as if somehow they possessed the exclusive right and authority to decide who did and who did not belong to God's covenant people, the community of genuine faith. In John chapter 10, Jesus is addressing this scenario. And he makes it clear that they are not the judges of who is and who is not a part of God's covenant community. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to imply that there is no way that they can decide this because the strong implication here is that they themselves are not part of God's true and covenant community. According to Jesus, they are actually thieves and robbers. We see this, and we see in verse 6 that they really don't get it. They refuse to hear what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 6 of John 10 with me. <coughs> Excuse me. The figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. They refuse to hear what Jesus is saying about them what he is saying about his identity also, and what he is saying about true membership and participation in the community of God's covenant people. So in verses 7 through 18, Jesus explains the meaning of this parable in clear and unequivocal terms. Now I want to begin by looking at the first portion of that explanation and its wonderful imagery today. In his full explanation, Jesus makes two I am statements. In verses 7 and 9, he says, I am the door, or as some translations say, I am the gate. And in verses 11 and 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. <clears throat> now, we need to understand something about parables as a literary form as we look at this. Some parables in the Gospels are complete stories like the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 or the parable of the prodigal son. <coughs> Others, like the one in today's passage, are more in the form of a short illustration from everyday life, something which contains familiar elements which the hearers should be able to latch onto and clearly grasp. Jesus often used everyday things that people were familiar with to communicate principles of eternal truth to them. But even though it was easy to grasp, the Jewish leaders just aren't getting it. I like what New Testament scholar Raymond Brown says regarding the hearer's failure to get it. 
their lack of understanding in verse 6. Because Brown says, the failure is not primarily an intellectual problem. It is an unwillingness to respond to the challenge of the parables. In other words, what we have here is not a head problem. It's not an issue of cognition. It was a heart problem. Because they didn't like the truths that Jesus was speaking. And that remains true for many people today. Now, as we look at the parable, the most important thing for us to remember in understanding and applying parables is that they make one or two key points. Points which will call for a response and call for application in our lives. With a parable, grasping the main point or points is what is key. Not every word or image in a parable is of significance or symbolic value. A parable is not an allegory where every little word and nuance has symbolic meaning. <clears throat> it's the main points that matter. And the main points in this parable involve the imagery of a door or a gate. And that's the imagery I want to focus on today. Because understanding the truth of the imagery employed when Jesus says, I am the door is critical for us, and that's what I want to make application of this morning. There are three truths concerning the door we see here in this passage. The one is this, or one is this. The sheepfold only has one door. <clears throat> in several other New Testament passages, the imagery of a gate or door is used. We see this used in Acts 14.27, which speaks of the door of faith being open to the Gentiles. But the imagery in John chapter 10 is unique because it is the only passage where Jesus Christ himself is depicted as the door. Like each I am statement of Jesus, this speaks powerfully of Jesus being the only means, the only way to salvation. It speaks of him alone as our hope and possibility for right relationship with God. And there is great force and power found in this image of the sheepfold. There is only one fold, and the only way to enter that fold is through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. This imagery would have been very familiar to folks in the Middle East in a way that, in the ancient Near East, in a way that might not be quite the same for us because in that day, to protect from thieves and robbers, shepherds at night would literally often lay across the gate or the doorway to a sheepfold. It reminds me of my friend Matt Bowman, one of my very closest friends, who is a longtime missionary in Cambodia. <clears throat> And for many years, Matt was director of an orphanage in Cambodia, and there were issues with a criminal gang in the area, and there was concern that they could break into the orphanage and try to do harm um, to the children at night. So for several months when all this was going on, Matt literally slept against the gate into the orphanage at night with his body physically blocking it so that if anyone tried to make entrance, he would know immediately that someone was trying to harm um, the children in the orphanage. But in doing this, the shepherd physically places himself in that way and becomes the door. And that is exactly, brothers and sisters, what Jesus has done for you and me. The only way into the sheepfold is through the door. The body of our Lord himself, who was broken, poured out, 
and raised from the grave for you and me. There was no confusion about this in the biblical era. There was no confusion about this in the early church. Documents of the early church beyond scripture attest to this fact. St. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, who was martyred in AD 108, wrote this, speaking of Jesus. He is the door of the Father, by which enter in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and the apostles and the church. The scriptures are clear. True believers have always understood salvation is by and through Jesus Christ and him alone. The sheep pen has one door and his name is Jesus. The second thing we see is that you can't climb over the fence. Look at verse 1 and verse 8 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And then in verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The Jewish leaders of the day were trying to climb over the fence. Climbing over a fence or a wall when you don't know what's on the other side can get you into a real mess. How many of you know that? When you can't see what you're dropping down into on the other side, you can get yourself in a heap of trouble. And Jesus is very clear. The one who climbs in by any other way is a thief and a robber. In verse 8, we see that those who are already sheep, believers, Christians, aren't fooled. They know that there is only one way. We know that there is only one way. But you know, people down through the centuries and in our day, people try to climb over the fence all the time. Our world, this community is filled with people who are trying to climb over the fence. We encounter people every day in the marketplace, in the workplace, wherever God would take us in our neighborhood who are trying to climb over the fence. How do they try to climb over the fence? There are a number of ways. One, by trying to earn a relationship with God through human efforts. Another way is by denying the unchanging truth and authority of Holy Scripture. By denying our sinfulness, by denying our need for a Savior, and yet Scripture is unequivocally clear. Romans chapter 3, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, St. Paul writes, But God, being rich in, his, in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. <clears throat> People try to climb over the fence by believing or asserting that there are many valid ways to a right and living relationship with God. We hear this all the time in the culture around us. All paths lead to truth. Your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, but they all lead us to the same God. We all believe in the same God. No, we don't. No, we don't. Or I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. 
if all paths lead to God, if all spiritualities lead to eternal life, then why did Jesus need to die? It's completely contrary to what Jesus says and means when he says that I am the door. <clears throat> People might sincerely believe that there are many ways to God. But with all compassion, they are sincerely wrong. And if you hold to that view, don't attempt to call oneself a Christian. Because it's completely contrary to what Jesus said and what he demonstrated in both his earthly ministry and his sacrificial death. And this type of assertion is contrary to the 2,000 years of church teaching, which is based upon the whole counsel of Scripture, upon the truth of God's Word. There are yet others who try to climb over the fence because they view God or a relationship with God as a means to an end. Instead of coming in surrender and love, they come with self-serving desires because if I do this, then God will make me rich or God will do this in my life or if I can bargain with God and, and salvation in some ways becomes very transactional. If God has done this and I, or if I do this, then God's obligated to do this for me and that's not the way it works. However it is, whenever we try to climb over the fence, we step into the role of being a thief or a robber because we do it our way we try to establish the means of salvation and futility in our own strength or in our own ignorance rather than embracing God's ways. And when that happens, we rob God, we rob ourselves, and we rob the Lord Jesus Christ of the reward of his sufferings, the honor and the glory, the obedience that is due him because of who he is and because of his sacrifice. And we rob ourselves of the very things we are seeking to experience. Relationship with God, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, purpose and true meaning in our lives even here and now. Trying to climb over the fence demeans the sacrifice of Jesus. Trying to climb over the fence keeps us from the very thing we are seeking. <clears throat> Third, abundant life is right through the door, verses 9 through 10. Just through the door is salvation. Just through the door is deliverance from bondage of sin and to being held by all the things of this world. Titus chapter 3 reminds us, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through washing, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There's quite a contrast between our Lord Jesus Christ, the door, and the thief. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That's what he says right here in verse 10. The thief only intends harm for the sheep. 
And it's interesting here that the word to kill is the word to kill for food. In other words, the thief wants to consume us, <coughs> to, to take all of the life out of us. And the things of this world, even trawling to follow someone leading over the fence or trying to go over the fence ourselves will cause us to be devoured. But in contrast, Jesus gives us safety and abundance and newness of life and abundant grace when we enter in through him who is the only way. Last week when I was at the Global Anglican Futures Conference, it was a wonderful time and so much of what we, we heard preached, because this was not a legislative conference, even though there was an important document that came out of it, which I'm going to have a little bit to say about, but it was not primarily a legislative conference. It was a time of teaching. It was a time of praying together with brothers and sisters from all around the world. When we went to the meetings, we had assigned seats for the morning sessions, and very intentionally, they were with people that were not from our region. My group had a lady from Australia, a lady from Canada, a bishop and his wife from Rwanda, a bishop from Nigeria, and an Anglican priest from Wales. And we were all together in this little, I see Pete Ted going, yes. <laughs> um, but we had this, and that was my, my prayer and discussion group each morning for each morning session at GAFCON. Um, but just a few reflections, so much of it centered around these things, that Jesus is the only way, that God's word is eternally true and is a sure foundation, and we must remain anchored to the truth of God's word. The theme for the conference this year, which meets every five years, this is the fourth GAFCON conference, was to whom shall we go from John chapter 6, verse 68. And the emphasis was that we first must go to Jesus. And then after we have gone to Jesus, then through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we go to the world with the good news of the gospel. Archbishop Foley Beach, who was um, the outgoing chairman of GAFCON, in other words, his term ended at the end of the conference, and now the Archbishop, Archbishop Mbanda of Rwanda is the chairman of GAFCON for the next five years. But Archbishop Beach's sermon on the open night talked about four key points. And this wasn't addressed to people in the world. This wasn't addressed to the church in the broader sector. This was addressed to those of us that were there in the provinces represented in GAFCON. We are called to be a repenting church. We are called to be a reconciling church. We are called to be a reproducing church. And we are called to be a relentlessly compassionate church. And I would encourage you to go online. If you just Google GAFCON for sermons or messages all of the sermons from the conference will come up and I would encourage you in your, as you're able to take time to listen to those. We began each day, each morning with a time of repentance because it was, we were addressing and speaking to some very difficult and challenging issues in the broader Anglican communion right now. We first needed to begin by understanding that we are sinful, broken people in need of God's grace every moment of every day and that we have to lean upon Jesus Christ and upon his grace and we can do nothing apart from him. And that was very much the tone of the meetings. 
Now, those of you who, see if I can say this all succinctly, um, and if, if there's a level of interest in this, I'm more than happy to do a Q&A session um, on a Sunday evening or something for those who might be interested. Over the past 20 years, most of the world in the Anglican communion has um, remained orthodox, anchored to the eternal truths of scripture, about 85%, represented by two groupings in the world, the Global Anglican Futures Conference, which is a missional movement, and the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans, GSFA, which is really a, a jurisdictional body without getting into all the details. Those two groups are working much more closely together than they have in the past. And the consensus was, while the ACNA has never been, a part, been officially recognized by the Anglican Communion, many of the other bodies like Nigeria and Sudan and Rwanda and Indian Ocean and um, Singapore and, and Australia are, but that there needs to be a reset of the Anglican Communion, that the historic structures have failed, that a departure from the truth and the authority of God's word, um, departures from the historic biblical understanding of marriage have reached a point of crisis, and that without repentance on the part of those who have made those decisions, um, the wording is that the, the fabric of the Anglican communion is irreparably torn, and it is time to reset the communion with new leadership structures. That's, that's where this is going. Now, there was a long statement that was released about all this in great detail, and I've, it's called the Kigali Commitment, and um, I've actually had copies of that made in the information table. I'd encourage all of you to pick one up or two up and take some time to read this because it spells out things. It spells out that, um, that, that there's a time, it is time to reset things and that um, we as 85% of the Anglican world cannot be in communion and fellowship with those who've departed from the truths of scripture. And a lot of this in the immediate was driven by what has happened in the Church of England in uh, the past several months where the um, House of Bishops in the Church of England is preparing um, documents to bless same-sex unions. Um, not marriages, but it really doesn't make any difference because what they're doing is blessing that which which God does not bless. And, and, and the... Um, the Kigali statement says in no uncertain terms that this is both um, pastorally insensitive and to do this is blasphemous. But the tone is not one of chest pounding. The tone is one of deep, deep sadness and deep sorrow and, and a sense of grief and a commitment also to care for people who struggle in area, every area of sin in their lives and to bring them to that place of healing and to bring them into um, deeper relationship with the Lord. That is all communicated. But again, it really isn't about one issue. What this all came back to, if you look at the foundational documents, was are we going to rest on the authority of God's word as it's been understood by the church for 2,000 years? Are we going to make sure the bishops uphold their ordination vows or their consecration vows, which say that they will banish all evil and drive error from the church instead of embracing it. And so, so that was the tone of what came to pass um, at this meeting. So I think it, it was a very momentous meeting. I think it's going to take several years for all of this 
to shake out in terms of what new structures look like, but they're very much seen to be a coming together of the Global South and GAFCON primates, which again represent 85% of the Anglicans in the world, and that it's time to move, and that the Archbishop of Canterbury, because of um, decisions he has made, really has no authority whatsoever, as it was said, why should a colonial structure from 200 years ago you know, be dictating what Anglican governance looks like in a post-colonial age? And um, it was said pretty explicitly. So now that I'm on a rabbit trail and I've rambled, um, well, thank you. This is, all, this is all very important stuff. And again, I want to emphasize there was nothing of chest pounding or chest thumping in the tone of what was said or how things were deliberated upon. This was a very sobering moment. And again, all of this has been written eyes wide open with the understanding that we as God's people are redeemed by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that we need to stay close to the good shepherd that we need to stay close to him, that we need to allow him to nourish us. We need to be very aware of who and what is feeding us. And we need to stay anchored to the truth of God's word. Well aware that we are fallen sinful creatures and whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus, we are bound to stumble and we are bound to fall. So again, if you have more questions about that, I'd encourage you to pick up um, the statement out on the information. It was a big stack out there about this deep. Thanks to Heidi Riker for copying those on really short notice. I texted her yesterday afternoon and said, by the way, do you think we could do this by tomorrow? <laughs> um, with Emily out on, on maternity leave. Um, but I encourage you to do that. And then I would look forward to having conversations. Not that I have all the answers, I don't. Um, but to kind of convey what took place. But it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conference. Um, Archbishop Kazimba from Uganda, the Archbishop Primate of Uganda, preached at the um, Thursday morning Eucharist concluding service and just, just um, powerful, powerful message. The other thing I came home with, um, which is not related directly to some of these things, but was with a keen realization that my first world problems and concerns pale when I talk to or hear brothers and sisters from all over the two-thirds majority world and the things they suffer and the things they suffer for the cause of Christ. When I hear a Nigerian pastor saying, talk about having the army show up at your house at six o'clock at night saying, you and your family need to come with us because we've heard that you're in danger. And the next morning you come back to your church and your house being a pile of ashes because they were both firebombed overnight. Or having people... Muslim insurgents come into your church services and kidnap 30 or 40 of your people and then execute them. And so many other things. That's just, just one aspect of things. But the things that they suffer, specifically for the cause of the gospel and living in just adverse conditions to start with and how they don't allow that, that to hinder them from being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world all around them. And again, I, I came back and thought, you know, the things I complain about, matter of fact, some of us would joke, we'd say something like, you know, that's a first world problem, isn't it? Um, but we need to be mindful of that and just how incredibly blessed we are and how much the Lord has given us and called, and these things he's given us, he's entrusted to us to be faithful stewards of the gospel 
and use as resources to advance his kingdom. So all that being said, um, Jesus is our good shepherd, friends, and we need to stay close to him. There is one says, to quote my friend John Hobbs, who went to be with the Lord last year, there is only one Savior. His name is Jesus. He is altogether lovely, and he does all things well. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your incredible love for us, your incredible love for all of humanity. Thank you for the truth of the gospel and the door that you have made, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God himself, who offers us life, who offers us salvation, who offers us forgiveness and deliverance and freedom in him. Thank you that you, through Jesus, do make all things new. So, Lord, may we hold firm to the gospel, ever mindful of our sinfulness, our brokenness. May we hold firm to your truth, which is the power of life, the power of God unto salvation. And, Lord, thank you for um, this Global Anglican Futures Conference. Thank you, Lord, for the tone and the spirit of what you were doing in our midst. And we pray, Lord, that it would continue. Unite us as your people all around the world. And Lord, may we not become distracted or sidetracked, but fix our eyes on Jesus and fix our eyes on his high calling to be ambassadors of his kingdom here in this community and around the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.